A little over 10 years ago now, I spent most of a year on a long pilgrimage. Uh, another a friend of mine and I uh, split up a little more than a year, and I, I did most of that, uh, the majority of it, as attendance uh, on a long pilgrimage to India with a friend of mine, he's a monk uh, in the Thai forest tradition, now the abbot at Amravati, Rajan Amaro. And uh, it was his, uh, he'd completed 25 years in the robes at that time, and, uh, or perhaps more, at least 25, and had never been to the Buddhist uh, holy sites in India, the places where the Buddha lived and taught and uh, where he was born, where he died. And, and we found every other possible place <laughs> that he'd ever spent any time during our pilgrimage year because Ajahn Amra really was uh, interested in visiting these sites in India. And during the uh, rainy season, the annual rains period, the Vasa, where uh, in the Theravada tradition, the nuns and monks make a determination to stay in one place. They don't um, wander about. It's, it's kind of a wandering tradition, but during that time they stay in residence. And they're allowed to leave for a few days, but uh, not more than about seven. They have to be back by the morning of the seventh sunrise. So basically they stay put during the rainy season. And so we were in a place called Savati for that uh, time. Um, and those of you who've read the suttas much will have probably come across the name of this place, Savati. Now the modern day village near there is called Sahet Mahet. But the ancient city walls uh, and some of the, the ruins of uh, what was there in Savati, they still exist. And the Buddha gave more he spent more rain seasons, more rains retreat periods in, in that place than in any other place and gave, I think, uh, more discourses there, more teachings were given there than any other single location. There's a famous area called the Jetavana or Jetta's Grove that's outside the city walls. And, and nowadays in India, it's a very beautiful, large area, a park-like setting. And there are um, the sort of foundations and, and some low walls and uh, kind of the, the ruins of um, what was there during the time of the Buddha, at least appears to be so. And there's one foundation that is said to have been the site of the Buddha's Kuti. Uh, Kuti is a meditation hut. And it's quite a lovely place. And we would had, we had a morning ritual. Uh, we would get up uh, in the dark before the, uh, dawn and, uh, get ourselves together and we would walk um, some distance through the small village and across some fields and uh, wending our way among the rice paddies there. Um, as the sky was beginning to lighten and we would go into the Jetavana and um, sit and meditate there. And our, we liked to arrive before sunrise and uh, we would sit uh, usually often together uh, for a short time uh, on the platform of the Buddha's uh, Kuti ruin. And then we each had our own spot. We'd spend the morning meditating in the Jetavana. And then we would each make our, our way back to where we were staying in time to have a meal. And um, other aspects of that morning ritual. But uh, often when we were making our way over to the Jetavana in the cool 
uh, of the early morning, relative cool in the uh, warm season, in the rainy season there, never truly cool. But we would hear chanting coming from one or another of the viharas, the uh, pilgrim rest houses uh, that are at all of these Buddhist sites, there are uh, these dwelling places for pilgrims from, and they're established by all of the different countries that um, <clears throat> have a Buddhist tradition of some kind. So there's a Japanese one and a Korean one and a Sri Lankan one and a Thai one and a Burmese one and uh, Tibetan ones. And there would be this chanting and, uh, that would come out and it was drifting across the fields in the early morning. And uh, one that I heard quite often was uh, a chanting of the Satipatthana Sutta, which is um, in this tradition, uh, it's one of the discourses that um, is most beloved in the Theravada tradition. Many people memorize it uh, and chant it uh, regularly. It's the single most complete set of meditation instructions that we find in all of the Pali discourses. So I thought I'd like to uh, play a bit of that chanting for you this evening. And this is not uh, chanting that I recorded there in India. It was done by a Sri Lankan monk named Venerable uh, Omalpi Sobita Mahathera. Um, it's quite beautiful. And I did hear chanting similar to this coming from uh, the Sri Lankan uh, temple, Vihara, many mornings. So we'll just, I'll just play uh, a bit of it to, um, that you can just listen to. Because I think sometimes there's a power in hearing these teachings in the original Pali language, even though we may not speak that. Um, this language exists to this day only as a vehicle for transmitting these teachings. It's not spoken anywhere. It's only uh, as, as a vehicle in this way. And I think um, sometimes it can be uh, powerful and moving to hear uh, the teachings in this language. So um, take me just a moment here. So you get to hear the homage to the Buddha. Bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namotasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namotasa bhagavato arahato Bhagavato Pachasosum Bhagavā 
I've played this uh, chant or parts of it uh, at the beginning of talks in the past. Once in a while I, I do that and I, I'm always tempted to just let it keep playing because <laughs> I doubt that there's anything I will say that would be more uh, beautiful, beautiful or eloquent than, than that. But I'll stop there after the first uh, verse and you may have picked up a word or two that is familiar or um, maybe because I've heard it a lot and I've, I've studied a little bit of Pali. But that chant began as so many of them do, the suttas, so many of them begin with the words, Ewang me suttang, Ewang me suttang. That's how he began that. These words, thus have I heard usually translated. And, and it, these, these, this was something that someone heard and then memorized. And then many, many people memorized for a long time, hundreds of years after the Buddha died. It was only through orally repeating these things and then eventually written down. But a long time after the Buddha was no longer walking around. Thus have I heard on one occasion, the Blessed One was living in the Kuru country where there was a town of the Kurus named Kamasadamma. There he addressed the bhikkhus thus, bhikkhus, venerable sir, they replied. The Blessed One then said this, bhikkhus, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of Nibbana, namely the four establishments of mindfulness. So this is the opening line and it's a powerful statement. Practitioners, bhikkhus, that's all of us as practitioners. This is a direct path to freedom, to the end of suffering. This is maybe the, the most powerful statement in this whole discourse, this, this is the way, this is a way, not the only way, but it is a way. This teaching, 
these four foundations or four establishments of mindfulness, the four satipatthanas. Sati is the Pali word for mindfulness. And, and I, I said, uh, I, it's, I used establishment of mindfulness, often translated as foundation of mindfulness, but I think establishment is a better word. Um, Bhikkhu Bodhi says this, this word satipatthana is, an, is a compound, it should be understand, uh, understood as a compound of sati, mindfulness, and upatana, which means an establishment. So this establishment of mindfulness would maybe capture best the original intention or meaning there. So these four arenas or four spheres of attention, places where we establish mindful awareness, we bring our attention to our life in terms of these. And we might equate this uh, idea of, of an establishment of mindfulness with uh, a sense of dwelling or abiding, abiding in mindful awareness, you could say, which I think is um, maybe subtle, but a a kind of an important distinction in terms of um, the emphasis that it places on this quality of being aware, of abiding in the quality of awareness, more emphasis on that than on any particular object of awareness. It's the quality of awareness that is of interest here. And it points to something really, uh, really important and profound for us to bear in mind is that we can learn, it's, it's, this, it's the quality of being aware that matters. We can learn what we need to from anything, from whatever is arising if well, there's awareness there. So the four satipatthanas, the satipatthana sutta, this teaching, what it does is it takes the entirety of what we can experience, the whole of our life, everything that makes up our experience of life, anything that is of the nature to arise in contact with the mind and heart with the senses, the whole deal, and it breaks it into these kind of categories or ways of looking. And familiar to most of you quite probably, but it's worth mentioning again. And I'm not going to go into a, 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 you know, there's, Joseph has written a whole book and given 50 discourses, Joseph Goldstein, on this Satipatthana teaching. And, and he does a great job, way better than I could possibly do. And you should uh, investigate that for details here. But it's, it's uh, in Pali, it's kaya nupasana, vedana nupasana, citta nupasana, and um, dhamma nupasana. These are the four. Kaya, body, materiality, vedana, vedana, uh, feeling tone, pleasant, unpe- unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant, feeling. This, arises with every contact. Chitta, the mind. In this case, it's pointing to the quality of the mind, of how it's, what's it's, what it's affected by. Mind affected by certain energies or qualities and not affected by them. And then Dhamma, Dhammas, 
So it's often said uh, objects of mind, mental objects, but I I think of it as patterns of experience or ways, uh, kind of like a a way that we can look at experience through a certain uh, perspective in terms of things like the hindrances and the factors of awakening and the six sense bases and their objects or the Four Noble Truths. And in a certain way, there is a movement from what is more gross to what is more subtle in in that way that I outline them, body, feeling, mind, and objects. But if we pay attention to what's happening in our ongoing experience, our our attention, there's a natural organic way that we are attending to all of these. So at some times we may highlight one or another, but we're basically looking at them all. We're paying attention to body. We feel the materiality there, the elemental nature of it, pressure, hardness, warmth, coolness, and so forth or the movements there. We may notice a pleasant or unpleasant feeling tone. We, anyone not notice that at times? That comes up, right? Usually we're abundantly aware of the unpleasant ones. We see the mind resisting that. We see maybe aversion to that. That's both the third and fourth, because it's the mind affected by aversion and the hindrances, it's a hindrance, that's in the fourth foundation. So we just, it's, it's a natural thing. So um, mostly we don't have to think about, it's not something we do, we're always doing it if we're paying attention. That's what we're doing, is exploring these four satipatthanas. I'm never gonna get through my talk. <laughs> just the way it goes. But the beauty and power of this practice is that it is inclusive of everything, anything. There is nothing that's left out. And it has to be that way or it would never be complete. It will never come to fulfillment if we do not include the entirety of our experience. We cannot leave something out and have the path come to completion. So it has to include everything. And it does include everything. And this is, this is important because we're including, the, we're including our life in whether we like what's going on or not, whether it's pleasant or not, and so forth. It's not, the practice is not about escaping from our life, it's about fully embracing our life. And it's not about, you know, we, we don't give up hope on this one, but it's not about gaining some kind of greater control so that we are able to get it to be the way we want it more of the time. That's a, that's, we're we're holding out some hope here that that's what we're getting, but, you know, I'd like to disabuse you of that notion if it's lingering in there somewhere. It's not about that. We can't get it the way we want it and then get it to stay that way. And I think it's important to really look at what the Buddha meant when he spoke of this practice of the Satipatthanas. He said, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief. What is meant by that? Because it can lead us to think that, that um, you know, the, the Buddha's realization is somehow... Th- getting to some kind of steady state place where it's always pleasant and we like how it is all the time. And that's what enlightenment must be like. 
but that's not too bad. <laughs> you know, the Buddha didn't get that. He had a bad back and he had all kinds of problemos and stuff that he had to deal with that he would probably rather have not, you know. The sutta's full of places where he says, stupid person, <laughs> why are you doing this? And he, he, you know, he said stupid person carefully and <laughs> wisely in the moment, but he didn't escape from life. He still had to go on alms around every day and, and live a life and die um, ill. He died having eaten bad food. And that was his, his ending. So it wasn't just all pleasant feelings. <laughs> right? You know, if we look at what would get us to come and spend time on a retreat like this at the Forest Refuge and, and the motivation that's underneath that, you know, if we set aside our personal stories, whatever we might say any one of us that has to do with, with what's personal to us, there'd be some connection, I think, to, to some sense of dis-ease or stress or struggle or something in life that we have found um, difficult. Some, some connection to this, to suffering on some level or other. Maybe not deep uh, traumatic suffering, but some sense um, of dissatisfaction or stress or struggle in our lives. And there's a deep kind of um, there's a depth and breadth of insecurity that underlines, underlies that that is worth exploring a bit. And, and uh, you know, Winnie talked about uh, the noble truth of dukkha the other night, but I think it's worth revisiting it a little bit because it's so key. It's the first of the four noble truths and it, it, um, it goes to the very heart of the issue here and what we're up to. So this word dukkha, which gets translated as suffering, which is not a good translation. And Winnie the other evening used uh, unsatisfactoriness. Maybe much better, but it has different levels that we might look at that on the most elemental or basic level. Dukkha means the, the uh, pain and painful, unpleasant feelings that come with having a body and a mind that don't do what we want that get old and get sick and eventually die. This is the trajectory, folks. <laughs> Too bad. If we have the, if we decide to get born, we're heading that way. <laughs> Difficult emotional states that come. So, that, so, so stress or painful uh, experiences on that level. And sometimes this shows up as really difficult times. You know, and the other morning in the reading from the book by Ajahn Brahm and when he talked about the truckload of dung that's been dumped, you know, sometimes a big truckload of dung is dumped on our doorstep and we didn't order it. But it shows up, you know, really painful, difficult experiences. And sometimes this, there's just this pervasive sense of not quite rightness, this unsatisfactoriness or unreliability, where we, no matter how great it is, it doesn't last. It's this unreliability born of change that even the most pleasant experiences, they don't last. 
they're subject to change. And so they're not reliable as a source of lasting happiness or satisfaction. We can't ask that of them. You know, and we get conditioned to think that we're supposed to get our lives to the point where it's always the way we want it. And, you know, it's supposed to be like these beautiful TV commercials where, where the people are, they look so good and they're just having such a good time. They're so happy and it just seems like it's just ongoing there. And, and we can't pull it off. And so, it, and it leads us to taking the noble truth of dukkha personally somehow as though our inability to get it to be like that TV commercial is evidence of personal failure, of, of some way that we're blowing it, not doing it right. But it's just the, it's just the noble truth <laughs> of things. It's an aspect of reality. And, you know, we don't want, we just don't want to open to this truth because it seems like a mistake or something that we're not doing right. And, and so when the Buddha talks about this is the path for the surmounting of pain and suffering and grief and sorrow, He's not talking about escaping from difficulty in life, but he's talking about suffering in relation to that. Because these things, because suffering in relation to the, the unreliable changing nature, the, the flow of joys and sorrows, right? Because it's not all dukkha, it's not all unsatisfactory. There are good times and pleasant times and joys, but we get that range, joy and sorrow, we get the whole deal. We can't get it the way we want it to be all the time and stay like that. But, but suffering in relation to that, that's not a given. That's where there's some room to, to work. It's in that relationship. And this is a key understanding that the Buddha came to. And so opening to this truth of dukkha is, is so key because unless and until we do, we're always going to be looking for a way out of it and we're going to be turning to that which is by its very nature is not reliable and cannot fix the problem. We'll be setting ourselves up for failure. Opening to dukkha, will uh, it, it gets us to actually start seeking for something that will work, <laughs> for a reliable strategy for finding happiness. We start looking in the right place if we open to this understanding. And so when the Buddha discovered that, that the suffering in relation to this, it's not trying to fix, you know, because otherwise we get into the situation where we're trying to fix samsara. We're trying to fix the, the, the inherently flawed nature of conditioned reality, it doesn't mean it's bad or wrong. It's flawed in that it is not reliable or amenable to our, we can't control it and get it to be the way we want it to. That's, it's, that's the problemo there. <laughs> you know, it's said that after his awakening, the Buddha saw in surveying the world with this kind of vast vision, he, he looked around, he saw beings trying to be desperately to be happy, to find happiness, contentment, ease and at the same time doing the very things that cause them to keep suffering. And in this regard, not much has changed in almost 2,600 years. It's still the same thing. All the shenanigans that we and everybody else get up to, it's all at the fund 
underneath it all, even some of the worst things that people get up to, underneath it all is a being who's trying to figure out how to find contentment or ease or satisfaction, some lasting okayness. That's underneath all of it. But we're just trying, we're trying to, we're trying, it's a futile attempt because it's trying to, to change the fundamental nature of things, trying to make this change stop happening, make the pleasant stay, hang on to that, keep the pleasant from coming. But the Buddha found that we have a, some, there's some room in here to work, that we actually can find a different way of looking at things. We can actually find, we can undo this misunderstanding, this misunderstanding about where to look for happiness. We can, we can find a different way of looking at things. And then through that, there's this possibility that we can find a path to happiness, to ease, find freedom right within this flow of changing conditions. So the key to that, the key to this whole thing is this quality of mindful awareness, mindfulness. That opens the doorway there. And so if we approach it in the right way, then, then we can see our practice. Meditation is this practice, this uh, training. We're training this quality of mindful awareness, training in mindfulness. This simple capacity that we all have to be awake and aware to know the truth of the moment. And through connecting with the, the way it is in the moment, we start to, to drop below the surface appearance and see the way it really is. I mean, take a moment right now as we sit here together and notice the quality. Ask yourself the question, is there awareness right now? It's a great thing to do. Anytime you ask that question, is there awareness? You get to say yes. You cannot ask that question and say no. <laughs> you might not have been, and you might not be <laughs> in the next moment, but in that moment, feel it right now. Feel the quality of the aware mind in this moment. It's so simple. Is there awareness? Yes. It's so simple, it gets taken for granted or goes unnoticed. But this is a complete game changer in our lives. This is a famous line, I don't know, in the uh, Dhammapada, the collection of teachings in verse form, that's kind of like, in a way, it's the Buddha's enlightenment verses. Mindfulness is the path to the deathless. Heedlessness is the path to death. The mindful do not die, but the heedless are as if dead already. That's strong. You know, the deathless is uh, another word. There's so many kind of synonyms or words that are used for um, the unconditioned or nibbana or the realization of of final understanding of liberation of mind and mind and heart. So mindfulness, this is the, ca the key, this is the pathway, this opens that door. 
with mindfulness, with mindful awareness, all things are possible. Without it, nothing is possible. Without it, we're just living out our conditioning. This is that as if dead already in the Buddha's words. That's what that's pointing to. We're just, we're just keeping going on that endless circle, living out conditioning. But with mindfulness, all things are suddenly possible. And this is simple capacity. We have it, all of us, and it's available in any moment. We don't have to get ready. Okay, here it comes. Working on it, working on it. Going to have my moment of mindfulness. Feel it coming. Getting my act together here. My moment of mindfulness. It's not like that. Right now, it's there. It's possible in any moment. And anything that arises, this is the power and beauty of the, the teaching in the Satipatthana Sutta, in this, in this teaching that includes everything. Anything that arises can serve as a vehicle for understanding, for liberating insight. It can arise in relation to anything. We don't have to like it. It doesn't have to be pleasant or fun. It doesn't have to be subtle and refined. Any contact at any sense, anything that arises in experience can serve as a vehicle for understanding because, because there are certain basic truths, and when he spoke to this, I'll say them again briefly tonight, there are certain basic truths that apply to anything that is of the nature to arise. Anything that is of the nature to arise is also of the nature to pass away. It is impermanent, anicca. This holds true for the most sublime experience or the most puny mind state, the grossest physical sensation or the most refined sense of porosity and lightness that might arise and everything in between. It's all anicca. Because it's anicca, impermanent, it is unreliable. Doesn't matter how the grooviest, best thing, great, yes, but it doesn't last. And through not lasting, it's not reliable. We can't ask any one particular experience to be the thing that does it for us because it won't stick around. And we see that it's all, it's all uncontrollable. None of it is amenable to our will, ultimately. It's causal. It's a flow of causal uh, conditioned things that arise due to causes and, f- and fall away due to causes. There's no, it's coreless in that way. It's not controllable. There's nothing, no abiding presence that's running it. It's, it's just doing its thing out of, because it's the nature, because of causes and conditions. The Buddha was this, he was a master at using you know, images and uh, images that illustrated points he was trying to make. And often they were images out of the life of that time. Some of them come from um, the agrarian society that he lived in. But there's one famous one that is, a, is an interesting image used to sort of talk about the spiritual life. And uh, I'll try to get a little bit of this in tonight. 
This is a famous image of, of a raft, one, using a raft to cross a flood, a flooded area. I'll read some words from uh, the, the Buddha. And the Blessed One said, suppose a man were traveling along a path and he would see a great expanse of water with the near shore dubious and risky and the further shore secure and free from risk, but with neither a ferry boat nor a bridge going from this shore to the other. And the thought would occur to him, here's this great expanse of water with the near shore dubious and risky and the further shore secure and free from risk. But there's neither a ferry boat nor a bridge going from this shore to the other. Suppose I were to gather grass, twigs, branches, and leaves, and having bound them together to make a raft, were to cross over to safety to the other shore, independence on the raft, making an effort with my hands and feet. And then this man, having gathered grass, twigs, branches, and leaves, and bound them together to make a raft, would cross over to safety to the other shore, independence on the raft, by making an effort with his hands and his feet. There's more to this uh, than that, but I am going to keep it to that part tonight. And this image of, of crossing a flood is uh, found in many places, and it's, it's kind of a useful image for uh, the spiritual life or for this movement um, towards transcendence or liberation or however we might speak about a spiritual path. You know, often that which brings us to seek a path is this sense of being um, swept along by events out of our control by this flood of swept along, sometimes even getting pulled under a flood of change, of unreliability and unpredictability, the flood of worries and duties and responsibilities. And, and often it's some connection with that feeling that, that it's this flood that we can't control that leads us to look for some answer, some way to find some balance in terms of that. And so this metaphor, this image of crossing the flood then is how, how we deal with that, a way, a way through that, a way to some kind of stability, firm ground of some kind, some place where we could find some ease and rest. And there's an essential consideration here that I'll at least touch on. The thing that, one thing I love about this image is that you look at what the raft gets made out of. It's leaves and twigs and branches and stuff that's laying around there. It's what's readily at hand. We make this raft out of what's here, the materials that are readily at hand, what's What's, so we make our raft out of what's arising in the moment, <laughs> the stuff of our life. That's what we put it together out of that. It's made out of sensations and feelings and hindrances and factors of awakening and beautiful stuff and defilements. And that's what we bind that together with mindfulness. We bind that stuff together. It doesn't say the man had to set up a special sawmill and mill down, you know, the perfect tree and get it really good and then built a really nice yacht. <laughs> and then he floated across and he didn't even really notice he was crossing the flood because it was really pleasant. 
you know, and he got a crew together so he could kick back. <laughs> and it doesn't say that he made this speedboat that just zipped across, skimmed the surface so you didn't even notice you were on the water practically and got over there like that. No, the person put together the raft out of this stuff that was laying around, got on it, and paddled with his hands and feet. Definitely got wet. Definitely knew he was in the water. You know, it's, and sometimes it probably gets rough. And we get swamped a bit and Sometimes maybe even the raft gets kind of broken apart a bit and we have to, we cobble it back together with some stuff that's floating by. We bind it together with mindful awareness and, and we labor with our own hands and feet. We get across that way. And this mindfulness is, that's what holds it together. And the more steadiness there is with that, the more stable our raft will be. But the good news is no matter what happens, there's always some stuff there. We can put another one together. And that's what we're doing every moment is constructing our raft out of what's arising, our momentary experience. That's the stuff. That's how we make our raft. We bind it with this quality of mindfulness that's available in any moment. And then we paddle our way across. And it's gonna take some time, but it's doable. Mm. A lot of good stuff here you're missing. (laughs) But I think I better stop. There will be another time. But I just, I guess just a last couple of words. It's, um, Well, maybe not any last couple of words. Let's just sit quietly for a couple of minutes. <laughs> and then we'll do some chanting to end the uh, evening. So our other uh, tradition here at the, uh, after the talks is to do this chanting uh, 